You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello and welcome to Indian Country News, a half-hour weekly program bringing you news from across Turtle Island and sometimes beyond. This one is being recorded on the 27th of February for the listening week that begins the 28th. This happens to be the 50th anniversary of the Siege of Wounded Knee, so we have some articles about that to open with. Your reader's name is Susan Shirey. First, from nativenewsonline.net. Why AIM chose Wounded Knee to occupy 50 years ago? This was posted February 26th, written by Levi Rickard. Monday marks the 50th anniversary of the takeover of Wounded Knee on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. On February 27, 1973, by the Indian, pardon me, by the American Indian Movement, AIM. The siege would last 71 days and would become known as the Wounded Knee II. Some 83 years earlier, on December 29, 1890, the U.S. Cavalry Regiment had massacred some 250 innocent Lakota men, women, and children on the same land. The central figures of the 1973 Wounded Knee takeover are now deceased. AIM co-founder Dennis Banks, Leech Lake Ojibwe, died on October 29, 2017. AIM co-founder Clyde Bellacourt, White Earth Nation, died last year on January 11, 2022, and AIM activist Russell Means, Oglala Sioux, died on October 22, 2012. In 1973, I was still in my youthful days. I was too young to join in the occupation. Years later, my work in Indian Country allowed me to meet and even interview all three of these historic men. I learned a lot about the 1973 Wounded Knees history take. Pardon me, maybe that means historic takeover from Banks and Bellacourt. My friend Paul Collins, who is an internationally acclaimed artist, through a fate of history, was in South Dakota painting a series called Other Voices, a Native American Tableau at the time of Ames' takeover of Wounded Knee. The previous year, Chief Frank Fools Crow Lakota, a spiritual leader, was at the United Nations to speak, and Collins was there for his Black Portrait of an African Journey exhibition. Fools Crow was so impressed with Collins's art, he told Collins he should come to South Dakota to paint the Lakota. Collins met Dennis Banks at Wounded Knee, and the two became very close, so much so that they referred to one another as, quote, a brother from another mother. Because of the close relationship between the two men, Banks would come to Grand Rapids often during the last day, pardon me again, the last years of his life. Many times unexpectedly, Banks would call me to come visit him at Collins's home. Depending on my schedule, I would take advantage of visiting him and, after founding Native News Online, of interviewing Banks. 
Even before Native News Online began publishing, I interviewed Banks on stage at Grand Valley State University in Grand Rapids in November 2009. The conversation covered a broad range of topics, and at one point I asked him how AIM ended up at Wounded Knee in 1973. Banks told me, First, there was an historical significance of Wounded Knee. It was the scene of an absolute slaughter where over 250 men, women, and children were slaughtered by the U.S. military. And up until that point, there was never no closure to what happened there. So Fool's Crow says, Let's go back to Wounded Knee. Let the spirits help defend us there. They were the ones, the spiritual leaders, who told us to go there. Banks further explained that AIM could not take over the village of Pine Ridge because of the strong presence of FBI agents and U.S. Marshals there, who were positioned on top of buildings. He said AIM did not want to bring attention to them. He told me that he did not realize how far the U.S. government would go to destroy the American Indian movement. What happened at Wounded Knee was nothing short of warfare. Military helicopters and jets flew overhead. Banks explained at one point there were 35 military tanks there, and over 130,000 rounds of ammunition were used against AIM. Most nights were filled with gunfire into the cordoned-off town from federal marshals and National Guard members. With the siege of Wounded Knee, all of the sudden American Indian concerns were front and center in the minds of Americans, who, for the most part, had thought about American Indians on Thanksgiving only. This, of course, was the power of being on nightly newscasts on television. The international media even paid attention to the poor treatment of American Indians. The American Indian movement allowed for Americans to get past the Disney version of Indian chiefs galloping through the dusty prairies on horseback wearing long war bonnets. The contemporary warriors, American Indian movement members, wore blue jeans, cowboy boots, headbands, and carried guns. The longer the siege lasted, the pride in being an American Indian tribal member intensified for many throughout America. The American Indian movement leaders became new heroes to a new generation of Native Americans. Average Americans had John Wayne to look up to in movies. In real life, Native Americans had Banks, Bellacourt, Means, and others. At the end of the 71-day siege, two Native Americans were killed, and another person remains missing until today. There is no denying the takeover by aim of Wounded Knee changed the course of history for Native Americans forever. Later that decade, legislation was enacted in support of Native American rights, including the 1978 American Indian Freedom of Religion Act and the Indian Child Welfare Act. Fool's Crow was right. Maybe there was some closure to what happened to 250 innocent Native Americans in 1890 at Wounded Knee as the result of Ames' takeover in 1973. And the next article is written by Kali Benali. It was posted February 22nd. 
This one comes from Indian Country Today, ictnews.org. Wounded Knee Legacy Lives On 50 Years Later. The AIM occupation of 1973 endures in a new generation of Native activists at Standing Rock and other protests. Dateline Wounded Knee, South Dakota. Madonna Thunderhawk remembers the firefights, pardon me, as a medic during the occupation of Wounded Knee in early 1973, Thunderhawk was stationed each night in a front-line bunker in the combat zone between native activists and government agents. I would crawl out there every night and we'd just be out there in case anybody got hit, said Thunderhawk. Oh, a Numba band of the Cheyenne River Sioux tribe. And she was one of four women assigned to the bunkers. Memories of the Wounded Knee Occupation, one in a string of protests from 1969 to 1973 that pushed the American Indian movement to the forefront of Native activism, still run deep within people like Thunderhawk who were there. Thunderhawk, now 83, is careful about what she says today about AIM and the occupation, but she can't forget that tribal elders in 1973 had been raised by grandparents who still remembered the 1890 slaughter of hundreds of Lakota people at Wounded Knee by U.S. soldiers. That's how close we are to history, she told ICT recently. So anything that goes on, anything we do, even today with the land back issue, all of that is just a continuation. It's nothing new. Other feelings linger too over the tensions that emerged in Lakota communities after Wounded Knee and the virtual destruction of the small community. Many still don't know, pardon me, many still don't want to talk about it. But the legacy of activism lives on among those who have followed in their footsteps, including the new generations of Native people who turned out at Standing Rock beginning in 2016 for the pipeline protests. For me, it's important to acknowledge the generation before us, to acknowledge their risk, said Nick Tilson, founder of NDN Collective and a leader in the Standing Rock protests, whose parents were AIM activists. It's important for us to honor them. It's important for us to thank them. Akeem D. Reinhardt, who wrote the book Ruling Pine Ridge, Oglala Lakota Politics from the IRA to Wounded Knee, said the AIM protests had powerful social and cultural impacts. Collectively, they helped establish a sense of the permanence of red power in much the way that black power had, for African Americans, a permanent legacy, said Reinhardt, who is a history professor of, at Towson University in Towson, Maryland. He went on, it was the cultural legacy that racism isn't okay and people don't need to be quiet and accept it anymore, that it's okay to be proud of who you are. A series of events is planned in South Dakota to recognize the 50th anniversary of the occupation of Wounded Knee, starting on Friday, February 24th in Rapid City, and building to a 50th anniversary powwow on Sunday in Porcupine, South Dakota, and a four-direction walk and ride on the actual anniversary, Monday, February 27th. 
The Women of Wounded Knee will also be honored on Saturday, February 25th in Porcupine, and another powwow is set for Saturday in Rapid City. The documentary film, From Wounded Knee to Standing Rock, will be shown on Sunday, February 26th in Kyle, South Dakota. Thunderbolt of Protest the occupation began on the night of February 27, 1973, when a group of warriors led by Oklahoma AIM leader Carter Camp, Ponca, moved into the small town of Wounded Knee. They took over the trading post and established a base of operations along with AIM leaders Russell Means, Oglala Lakota, Dennis Banks, Ojibwe, and Clyde Bellacourt, White Earth Nation. Within days, hundreds of activists had joined them for what became a 71-day standoff with the U.S. government and other law enforcement. It was the fourth protest in as many years for AIM. The organization formed in the late 1960s and drew international attention with the occupation of Alcatraz from 1969 to 1971. In 1972, the Trail of Broken Treaties brought a cross-country caravan of hundreds of indigenous activists to Washington, D.C., where they occupied the Bureau of Indian Affairs headquarters for six days. Then on February 6, 1973, AIM members and others gathered at the courthouse in Custer County, South Dakota, to protest the murder of Wesley Badheart Bull, Aglola Lakota, and the lenient sentences given to some perpetrators of violence against Native Americans. When they were denied access into the courthouse, the protest turned violent, with the burning of the Chamber of Commerce building and damage to other buildings and vehicles. Three weeks later, AIM leaders took over Wounded Knee. It had been waiting to happen for generations, said Kevin McKiernan, who covered the Wounded Knee occupation as a journalist in his late 20s and who later directed the 2019 documentary film From Wounded Knee to Standing Rock. If you look at it as a storm, the storm had been building through abuse, land theft, genocide, religious intolerance, for generations and generations, he said. The storm built up and built up and built up. The American Indian movement was simply the thunderbolt. The takeover at Wounded Knee grew out of a dispute with Aglola Sioux tribal leader Richard Wilson, but also put a spotlight on demands that the U.S. government uphold its treaty, obli me, treaty obligations to the Lakota people. By March 8th, the occupation leaders had declared the Wounded Knee Territory to be the independent Oglala, Oglala, pardon me, the independent Oglala Nation, granting citizenship papers to those who wanted them and demanding recognition as a sovereign nation. The standoff was often violent and supplies became scarce within the occupied territory as the U.S. government worked to cut off support for those behind the lines. Discussions were ongoing throughout much of the occupation with several government officials working with AIM leaders to try and resolve the issues. The siege finally ended on May 8th with an agreement to disarm and to further discuss the treaty obligations. By then, at least three people had been killed and more than a dozen wounded. Two native men died, 
Frank Clearwater, identified as Cherokee and Apache, who was shot on April 17, 1973, and died eight days later. And Lawrence Buddy Lamont Oglala, pardon me again, Oglala, who was shot and killed on April 26th. Another man, black activist Ray Robinson, who had been working with the Oglala Sioux Civil Rights Organization, went missing during the siege. The FBI confirmed in 2014 that he had died at Wounded Knee, but his body was never recovered. A U.S. Marshal was also shot and paralyzed and died many years later. Camp was later convicted of abducting and beating four postal inspectors during the occupation and served three years in federal prison. Banks and Means were indicted on charges related to the events, but their cases were dismissed by federal court for prosecutorial misconduct. Today, the Wounded Knee National Historic Landmark identifies the site of the 1890 massacre, most of which is now under joint ownership of the Oglala Sioux and Cheyenne River Sioux. The tribes agreed in 2022 to purchase 40 acres of land that included the area where most of the carnage took place in 1890, the ravine where victims fled, and the area where the trading post was located. The purchase from a descendant of the original owners of the trading post included a covenant requiring the land to be preserved as a sacred site and memorial without commercial development. And though internal tensions emerged uh, in the AIM organization in the years after the Wounded Knee occupation, AIM continues to operate throughout the U.S. in tribal communities and urban areas. In recent years, members participated in the Standing Rock protests and have persisted in pushing for the release from prison of former AIM leader Leonard Peltier, who was convicted of first-degree murder despite inconsistencies in the evidence in the deaths of two FBI agents during a shootout in 1975 on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. A new generation. Tilson, now president and chief executive of NDN Collective, an indigenous-led organization centered around building indigenous power, traces the roots of his activism to Wounded Knee. His parents, Joanne Tall and Mark Tilson, met at Wounded Knee, and he praises the women of the movement who sustained the traditional matriarchal system during the occupation. I grew up in the American Indian movement, said Tilson, a citizen of the Oglala Lakota Nation. It wasn't a question about what you were fighting for. You were raised up in it. In fact, if you didn't fight, you weren't going to live. Tilson credits AIM for most of the rights indigenous people have today, including Indian gaming, tribal colleges, the Indian Self-Determination and Education Act, and the American Indian Religious Freedom Act. He said the showed the world that tribes were sovereign nations and their treaties were being violated. And when AIM and spiritual leaders such as Henry Crow Dog, Leonard Crow Dog, and Matthew King joined the fight, it became intergenerational. He said, it became a spiritual revolution. It also became a fight that was about human rights. It became a fight that was about where indigenous people aren't just within the political system of America, but within the broader context of the system of the world. Tilson appreciates that his parents were willing to participate in an armed revolution 
to achieve one of their dreams of establishing KILI radio station, known as the Voice of the Lakota Nation, which began operating in 1983 as the first indigenous-owned radio station in the United States. They wanted to communicate and organize with the people as well as create transparency in tribal government, he said. His own organization, NDN Collective, is based on what the American Indian movement achieved. He said, it's why NDN has the balanced approach it does. We defend, develop, and decolonize. The Dakota Access Pipeline protest in 2016 came to be a defining moment for him and his brother. They had wondered, he said, what would be their wounded knee? But though Standing Rock grew from the Wounded Knee occupation, it also had its differences, he said. What made it so powerful and what made it different was that you actually had grassroots organizers and revolutionaries and official tribal governments coming together too, said Tilson. I think that Standing Rock in particular actually reached way further than Wounded Knee because of how the issue was framed around water is life. Name is the catalyst that started it all, however, he said. He wants the 50th anniversary of Wounded Knee to be a time to reflect on what still needs to be learned about the movement and to know more about the people who weren't in the spotlight at the time. Alex Fire Thunder, deputy director of the Lakota Language Consortium, said the occupation of Wounded Knee and other activism helped revitalize indigenous language and culture. His mother was too young to have participated in the occupation, but, he said, she remembered visits from AIM members in the community. The whole point of AIM, the American Indian Movement, was to bring back a sense of pride in our culture, said Fire Thunder, Oglala Lakota. Sorry, I keep flipping that today. A huge aspect of our culture and essence of our whole cultural identity is in the language, he said. A lot of language programs, educational programs, and the element of language in education itself, and the whole status of the language, improved as a result of the awareness of the value of culture and the sense of pride that our people had. Fire Thunder, who now teaches the Lakota language, said he owes a debt of gratitude to AIM and the Warriors at Wounded Knee. For Thunderhawk, the issues became her lifelong work rather than momentary activism. She joined AIM in 1968 and participated in the occupation at Alcatraz, the BIA headquarters, the Custer County Courthouse and Wounded Knee, as well as the Standing Rock Pipeline protest in 2016. She said work was being done today by a new generation and is a continuation of the work her ancestors did. That's why we were successful in Indian country, because we were a movement of families, she said. It wasn't just an age group, a bunch of young people carrying on. She hopes her legacy will live on and that her great-great-grandchildren will see not just a photo of her, but know what she sounded like and the person she seemed to be. It's something that she can't have when she looks at a photo of her paternal great-grandparents. 
And finally, Frank Starr comes out, the current president of the Oglala Sioux Tribe, also believes it's time for the previous generation's work to be recognized. That's why I support AIM, not only on a family level, he said. I have a lot of pride in who I am as a Lakota. Times have changed. Now I'm using my leadership to help our people rise, to give them a voice, and I believe that's important for Indian country. And in my final minute, I'll read excerpts from the last piece from Native News Online. Controversial Thacker Pass Mine Gets Permit. A U.S. judge on Monday handed down a mixed ruling in the highly fraught Thacker Pass Lithium Mine case. The ruling upheld the Bureau of Land Management decision to approve the Thacker Pass Lithium Mine in northern Nevada, but ordered the BLM to review the mining claims Lithium Americas, the company developing the mine has, in according with a 19th century law that governs mining on public lands. BLM, which issued a permit for the mine in 2020, had faced legal challenges from conservation organizations, a local rancher, and several tribes to stop the project. People of Red Mountain is an indigenous organization of traditional knowledge keepers and members of the Fort McDermott, Paiute, and Shoshone tribe. They have been opposing the Thacker Mine project since 2021 and said that the lawsuit is a matter of protecting their culture and sites considered sacred to them. They said, our hearts are heavy in hearing the decision that Judge Du did not revoke the permits for the Thacker Pass Lithium Mine. Indigenous peoples' sacred sites should not be at the expense of the climate crisis the U.S. faces. That brings me to the end of our time for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. This was Indian Country News. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.